Welcome, I'm Lorelei Binstock, and this is a Trauma Survivor Thrivers Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me live on Fireside Chat, where you can be a part of the conversation as my virtual audience. I am your host, Lori Lee Benstock. Everyone has an opportunity to ask me or our guests questions by requesting to hop on stage or sending a message in the chat box. I do ask that everyone be respectful. So I have um, my guest today is Reverend, Reverend Rex Shades Eagle, and it appears we're having some issues. Um, Rex, can you hear me? Let me see if I can grab him back on stage. Hello? Rex, do I have you? Hi. Hi. Well, today's guest, thank you so much for joining. I know that it's tough. I feel like Fireside Chats, it's, it's, sometimes we run into a bunch of issues, um, but I do appreciate you joining us. I do want to introduce everyone to our guest. Um, our guest is Reverend Rex Shades Eagle. He's the author of No Love, a memoir, where when he's actually sharing how he overcame 27 years of addiction by healing childhood trauma. It's incredible, incredible stuff here. And so, again, I'm so sorry about all of the technical issues, uh, Rex, but I am so glad that I finally got you on. Yeah, it's good to be here. I apologize. I uh. I don't use Fireside that often, so I didn't realize I was doing things wrong. So, <laughs> I think they just did an update because I actually realized they did an update just before my show a few weeks ago, and it was same situation. It's it's technology. What can we do? <laughs> yeah. um, here we are, right? Right. At least we we're here. So, I, you know, you say you've healed twenty seven years of addiction from healing your childhood trauma, and I absolutely want to get to that. Um, but I want to. I I was wondering if you were comfortable sharing a little bit about your childhood and the trauma that you've experienced. Absolutely, like uh, my life is literally an open book. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's what it's uh, it's it's what my book is about. Um, you know, you introduced me as a reverend, so I believe that. Uh, not not saying that I'm anything special. I believe this for all of us. I, but I believe that our trauma. So there's a saying that God will never give you more than you can handle in a day. I don't really agree with that. I believe that life is going to give you more than you can handle every day. God gives you the strength to be able to overcome it and get through it and see another day. So I come from a pretty messed up background when I was born, I was immediately taken away from my mother uh, because <laughs> my sphincter on my rectum was too small. And they took me, I was born in South New Jersey. They took me across the bridge to Philadelphia to a different hospital, I guess, to stretch it and make it bigger for a month. And so for the first month of my life, I only had physical contact with my mother for about 30 minutes. Mm. Um, which as we know now with studies and things with my, like my partner is a midwife and a doula. So <clears throat> like now they understand that like that contact, especially in the first, you know, 24 hours is so vital to connection and just development of proper development of babies. Right. So I, di I didn't get none of that. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, when I got out of the hospital and returned to my uh, biological mother and father, they took off to South Carolina because my father had joined the Marine Corps. Um, he got kicked out almost immediately for just being a peace alcoholic. And uh, he took it out on me and my mother. He was hitting me. He was hitting her. Um, I guess the sheriff had been called several times. And the second to last time the sheriff was called, he told my mother, Sharon, he said, if I, if I have to come here again, we're going to take the kid. Mm. And of course they had to come again. And 
she begged him and pleaded with him, like, please don't take him. I'll call my parents. So she called uh, her parents. They came and got me. Um, I was about four and a half months old. Um, I didn't find this out until my sixth birthday. On my sixth birthday, because I grew up calling my maternal grandparents mom and dad. So anytime you hear me or anybody ever hears me say mom or dad, that's who I'm talking about. Your on grandparents. My sixth, yeah. Um, and on my sixth birthday, me and my dad, my grandpa, grandfather, where it feels really weird calling him grandpa. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's my dad, you know, uh, and, and it became legal on this day. But So we sit there all day in court. We go to lunch at this diner and, you know, and then come back and sit there. And I just remember the wooden benches were so uncomfortable, but I didn't care because I was with my dad. He was my freaking hero. Uh, and just about the end of the day, the judge calls him up and my dad's with his lawyer and there's another lawyer and they talk a bunch of stuff that I don't understand. And one of the things that I do remember, you know, not verbatim, but basically he was like, well, he's like, it looks like his father isn't going to show. So we'll finalize the adoption. He's yours. Hmm. Something to that effect. And I'm like sitting there like, what, what are we talking about here? What adoption? <laughs> you know, what father, you know? So on the way home, my dad tells me that he is actually, in fact, not my dad. He is actually, in fact, my grandfather on my mother's side and that my biological father, uh, and this, <laughs> so, so this story, oh, I, I got a funny story after this. Uh, he, told me that he is in fact, a piece of shit and had just got out of prison, was in prison for the last five and a half years in Texas. Um, and he was supposed to be there today to take custody and he didn't show up. So now I'm stuck with you. That's what my dad tells me, right? Mm. So I just remember being in shock and, uh, yeah, I'm not going to give away all the stories. This is the second big traumatic event incident of my life the first happened like a few because my birthday's in january on january 16th the first was on christmas eve uh a month before and uh so i'm just sitting there but as soon as he told me this i was like what's his name and he's like it's the same as yours and so now all of a sudden it's six years six years old i get this like Duh, big red truck moment where, I'm, well, I guess that explains why I'm a junior. Like, cause my, my grandfather's name is Edmund Walter and my biological name that I was born with was Thomas Francis Toll Jr. And so like, I never put two and two together that I wasn't his actual son. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Children don't yeah. think about that kind of stuff. No, no, not at all. Fast forward a couple weeks later. Uh, he pulls me into his workshop, uh, which was my favorite place to be because he did CB repair and he uh, he had a piano, he had an organ in there, and that's where him and my sister's band played. So like his workshop was like my like fantasy land. And he asked me, he kneels down on one leg like he's going to propose to me, and he says, "Hey, <laughs> if you had to choose who you were going to live with, me or your mom, who would it be?" Right. So this is a question posed to a six-year-old boy yeah. by his dad with his mom not around in his workshop. It's a setup, right? So, which it doesn't matter where he would have asked me. And even if she was present, I would have chose him because he was my dad. He was my hero. He was in the National Guard. He had been to war. You know, this was at the time when Rambo was like really getting popular and like <laughs> The Vietnam era TV shows were all over, like the A-Team and stuff like that. And so I think about it and I'm like, well, you, little did I know at six years old that this would be the most important decision that I ever made in my life. Because about two weeks later, about right around Valentine's Day, which was really shitty, uh, we moved out. And moved in, My, we, I remember going and moving the woman who would be my future stepmom out of her house with all her kids and all her shit. And my dad was there because apparently her husband was an abusive alcoholic mm -hmm. and uh, my dad was rescuing her from this situation. And we move in with her 
almost immediately she just treats me like shit. Like I'm like the help has me always like, we'll be in the middle of a show and like, she'll have me get up and go like get her something or do this or do that. And like, ah, uh, but about, it was right around the end of February, beginning of March, 1980. And I don't remember what I did because I couldn't have done anything to deserve what I'm about to tell you. Ah, uh, but like, I, I'm pretty sure I dissociated because I had these snapshots images like Joe, yeah. Dr. Joe, Dr. Joe Dispenza calls them Polaroid snapshots of trauma. Like when you're, when you're, the event spikes at its highest, your brain, your memory takes a snapshot. And so like in my scrapbook of snapshots of trauma, when I go through it in my mind, I just remember with my head and my like face buried in the corner of the couch where the arm meets the back and her behind me holding onto my shirt, beating me on the back of the head with a soup mm. ladle. And my next flash is like her with my head under the spigot in the tub, running cold water on my head, trying to get the bleeding to stop. Oh my goodness. And then my next snapshot is us sitting at my dad's work and her, well, th this is more like a, a video frame, like a TikTok. I was <laughs> <laughs> uh, sitting at my dad's work and me holding this ice towel thing wrapped around my head and her telling him that I was running through the kitchen and I'd slipped on the freshly waxed linoleum floor and hit, hit my head on the dishwasher. And Did like, you say anything? No, no. Yeah. I was told to be quiet or I would get worse. Mm. Uh, so I was quiet. I plus I would I was I was doing my best not to just be full on sobbing. Like I was in so much pain. I, I'm pretty sure I was in shock. I'm pretty sure I had a concussion. Um and then the next the, the next TikTok on your for you page is the uh she pulls over in this dirt lot and I'm sitting in the back seat uh behind the passenger seat and she turns the car off. And she turns around and she looks at me with her like two and a half year old son in the car seat. Actually, I don't even think he was in a car seat. He's next, <laughs> he's next to me. And she looks me dead in the eye and she says, if you ever tell anyone about the things that go on in our house, I'll kill your dad. Wow. I don't care what happens to me. You may go somewhere else. You may go live with your bitch mom, but you're Dad will be dead because you couldn't keep your snitch mouth shut. Wow. And that was exactly what she needed to say to get me to do exactly what she wanted me to do. And, uh, and how old were you? You were six? Six years old. Six. Yes. Six. Um, and, uh, so we go to the hospital and, this is the longest story I'm going to tell because this kind of sets the pace for the rest of my life um, mm -hmm. or at least the rest of my life up until I, I got clean and sober. Um, we're sitting in the in the room and we kind of went in really fast. You know, you got to remember this is 1980 in South New Jersey. There wasn't like a hospital on every corner like there is now or like urgent cares and things like this. Yeah. You know, We had to drive like – I, like this was Glassboro, New Jersey that I was living in. And like, we had to drive to, uh, Washington township, which was like three towns away. And, uh, the hospital was JFK Memorial hospital. And, uh, I remember these nurses, they like rushed us into a room and they closed the curtain and, uh, different nurses keep coming in probably like three, maybe four nurses kept coming in and they were like, they, they'd look at it and they're like, so what happened? And then she would tell the story and they would look at me and I'm sitting there just sobbing, avoiding eye contact. And then they'd be like, okay. And then another one would mm. come in with the, with the last one. And they'd be like, he hit his head on what? And like Ar Arlene was getting like, like, like visibly Arlene was my stepmom. Uh, she was getting visibly flustered because they kept, having her repeat her story. You know what I mean? Cause it didn't appear to be what she said it was. Like, right. Uh, yes. And Ugh. like there was blunt force trauma to the back of my head. And, uh, 
So finally the nurses leave and the doctor comes in with the first nurse, the one who went and kept getting other ones. Because <laughs> the first nurse kept coming back with a new one. And uh and so the doctor comes in and he tells Arlene, he's like, I, I need you to leave. And she was like, I'm his, but he's he's like, You're his nothing. You're not listed on any paperwork. We called the father, you're his girlfriend. You're nothing. She's like, you are going to leave or I will call security and have you escorted out of the hospital and we will hold the boy until his father comes to get him. And uh, so I'm sitting there like hope, right? There's hope. They know something. So. Sorry, when I think about this, I just have to like, I like, I have to send love back to him. To, to me then because I think it's mm -hmm. the love that I've been now that sustained me then. Yeah. Um, but I'm sitting there and my heart is so full of hope. Probably the most it's ever been. Like even more than like that hope in that big package under the tree is for me. You know what I mean? At five years old. Right. And uh, so she leaves all pissed off and like the nurse like makes her like leave leave out of earshot. And then the doctor like lets me see her walk her away so that I know she's gone. And then he closes the curtain and then he fucks up. <laughs> he says, Ugh. do you want to tell me what really happened? Mm. <laughs> do I want to tell you more than life, more than anything in this whole world? Do I want to tell you what happened? But I can't. Because I believe her. I believe that anyone at six years old, I knew in my heart, even if I didn't think about it consciously and like, nope, nope, she's going to kill my dad. I knew in my heart that she was fucked up enough to do what she said. If she could do this to a six-year-old kid that she had just met who had never done her a, 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 any harm at all, who was going out of his way to please her because he could tell that she didn't like him, ah, uh, then I knew that she would follow through whether she actually would now in hindsight or it doesn't matter at, you know, children from like what the first seven years of their lives are in a theta brain state. So, mm -hmm. so like what they think is real. That's why when a kid makes a mud pie, it's not a little tin <laughs> full of mud. It's a pie made out of mud. You know what I mean? Like you could probably eat it. They don't want to cause it doesn't taste good. You know what I'm saying? Right. So in right. my mind, she was going to kill my dad. So I just looked at him dead in the eye and I said, I slipped on the floor and hit my head on the dishwasher. Oof, gosh. Yeah. And he said, well, if that's all, you, if that's the story you're going to stick with, there's nothing I can do for you. And he put 27 stitches on three different big cuts on the back of my head and watched as I walked out of the hospital with the woman that he knew had just done that to me. Wow. No call to, so CPS in New Jersey is called DIFUS, Division of Youth and Family Services. No phone mm -hmm. call to DIFUS, no visit at the home, no follow-up on is the boy safe. So I think Arlene kind of knew how it worked because she had been to the hospital so much from being beaten by her ex-husband that she knew, at least back then, before laws protected the victims, Mm -hmm. uh, that they had to go off of whatever I said. And so uh, the abuse got worse. Um, it escalated to her favorite, I call it torture device, was a, uh, a phone book, the white pages, because it's not that thick, and a small little maybe 18-inch little wooden baseball bat that she would pin me down and hold it on my ribs and just beat it. And because it doesn't leave marks and it will disperse the pain throughout the whole area of the phone book instead of just one area where the bat hits. Mm. Uh, and your dad had no idea. That's what he says. And, and I believe him now. And yeah. we'll get to that. We'll get to that later. Um, mm -hmm. No, she was very. She didn't. Um, there was always a story. And and here's the thing. On my on my eighth birthday, my dad bought me a helmet for as a, as kind of a joke, but also kind of seriously because 
on top of the stuff that Arlene did to me, like broken arm, uh, concussions, uh, wow. you know, cuts on the head, things like this. Uh, I was a really, really, really adventurous kid. Like I was the kid that would climb up to the top of the tree until it broke and I fell out. <laughs> and you know what I mean? Like I was a, me and my friends would spend all week long, uh, at this, it was this dirt track that was in the woods behind my house. Cause, uh, the house that I grew up, I grew up in up until I was 12, um, hat was on six acres and it was one acre of developed land. And then it was five acres of woods that had a pond that had like cotton mouths and salamanders and toads. And like, we, I mean, we would like, I was never in the house. I wanted to be away from her as much as possible. Yeah. So like, if I wasn't at school, like literally I would, my dad went to work. He was head groundsman at Glassboro state college. Um, and he would leave for work by like seven, seven fifteen every morning. And I was usually gone before him. And, uh, I had a BMX and I, I, I knew how to work <laughs> on it. And I swept floors at Mario's meat market to earn money. And then I started mowing lawns and raking leaves and shoveling snow. Um, this is at like seven, eight years old. I'm doing these things. Because I just didn't, I, I never got anything from her. I would go to my mom's on the weekends, um, but she worked so much. Like she worked from like seven o'clock in the morning. She left the house at seven o'clock in the morning and she got home at seven o'clock at night. Yeah. And she was pretty much working like 10, 11 hours a day, except on Sundays, she would take a few hours off to spend some time with me. But like when her and my dad split up, like, it fucked her up. Um, my entire life, she's been with two men. Her entire life. She's in her 70s. She's been with two men. She met my dad right out of high school when she was working at a waitress in a restaurant that she ended up owning. Um, and, boy, he, he got her in the boat, hook, line, and sinker, reeled her right in. And he just crushed her soul when he left her like 15, 20 years later. And, uh, she dated one other guy for about six months and then finally just told him, you know what? I don't really have any interest in this. And then like, she literally became the cat lady. Uh, hmm. but the abuse escalated. Um, and here's, here's, here's an even sicker thing is my step siblings. Cause she had two teenage boys that were about 17 and 15 and then she had a like a 16 year old daughter and then she had like a two two and a half year old son so her older kids would watch her beat me and they would like egg her on and they would like give her ideas oh and like they, they would all like feed into it it was like almost like a fucking weird like episode of the walking dead or something or like you know what i mean like where yeah. they would all like and the two boys were, they were, they were, they were just the ones who were like, yeah, 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 yeah. And like my stepsister, little Arlene, she would say shit like stick it up his ass. Like she was like, cause Arlene loved to hit me with kitchen utensils. I don't understand. And my dad bought her this set of like weird material, some kind of like, you know, like the new craze space age technology guaranteed not to break. But it was all this like weird, smooth, plasticky, weird stuff. And like she would beat me and then she would like tear my clothes off and like use rubber bands and snap them on my genitals or like stick the handle up my butt. And like mm -hmm. they would all just egg her on. And then probably about six months into all this, my two stepbrothers came into my room one night and made me give them blowjobs. And... Oh. That, that went on until I was about nine years old. Um, the beatings were bad and uh, the molestation was bad. It was probably at least once a week, usually more than that, because they didn't always come in together. Um, but they came in one night and I had one of my dad's knives. <laughs> 
and I told him something to the effect of, I may not get it tonight, but it'll be mine if I ever see it again. And uh, so that stopped. They believed that. Um, and then and then they stopped egging her on too. Like they lost interest. You know what I mean? It was almost yeah. like, it was like the foreplay was gone. Yeah. So there was no more He's fighting around. back now. Yeah. And uh, so the beatings became less frequent, but they came, they became more violent. Um, from nine to 12, I probably experienced about four or five broken bones. Um, and about four or five concussions in her hands. Uh, by the time I was 12 years old, I had had 11 concussions and about nine or 10 broken bones, including, uh, a skull fracture. Um, it's funny because the skull fracture, when it healed, I have this, I still have this today, this like super pronounced lump right at the base of my uh, cranium, right where my neck meets my skull. Mm-hmm. She cracked it and it healed weird. Um, that was with a baseball bat to the back of the head um, that I didn't see coming. Uh, I was sitting at the table and I got hit in the back of the head with a baseball bat, not full force. I mean, she wasn't trying to kill me, but she was trying to hurt me and she did. Um, and that, and then about six months later, right after my 12th birthday, um, me and my younger stepbrother were like, we had just watched one of the star Wars movies and we were a uh, lightsaber fighting with wiffle ball bats that we had stuffed with newspaper, wet newspaper that had dried. And we had them colored different colors to be different lightsabers. And, I probably hit him too hard um, because, you know, like shit rolls downhill, right? <laughs> so I would take <laughs> any opportunity I could because he was the catalyst for a lot of the abuse. He would always run to her and like say, he did this, he did that. And she would get pissed. And then he would like start screaming, stop, stop, stop. And then he like, he would like, he would be the catalyst and then the hero. You know what I mean? Like, and he would like kind of hold it over me like, well, she would have kept hitting you if I hadn't stopped her. I'm like, well, she wouldn't have started if you hadn't told her, you know? And right. so he, he screams, she comes running up the stairs and she's got this, uh, like two and a half, three, like baseball bat length piece of, uh, one by one board. Mm -hmm. And she's holding it like a baseball bat and running at me, running full force. And she's got a cocked back. Like she's about to just, kill one of the walkers on walking dead. And this is the most clear moment in my memory that I've ever had in my life. Time kind of stopped and I'm looking at her and a voice in my head. It was my voice. It wasn't like some foreign voice, but it was my voice. It was like me talking to myself. I was like, this bitch is going to fucking kill you. Sorry. I curse a lot. I apologize. It's, it's fine. It's totally fine. Um, totally fine. And I remember thinking like, if you don't stop her, she's going to kill you. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow, but she is going to be the one that ends your life. And it's going to be sooner rather than later. And, uh, I made a decision and like, almost like a switch being turned back on she was swinging and I put my left arm up and I blocked it and I heard the bone break mm. and I hit her so hard. I punched her so hard in the face that my younger stepbrother says that I knocked her out. Um, I don't remember. I don't remember anything, but as I was told by my dad later and by my stepbrother and my older stepbrother, who made it very clear a couple days later that he was going to fucking be there on my 18th birthday for payback for revenge for this. But I guess by the time my dad came upstairs, I had had her neck pinned to the hardwood floor and I was, you know what a hammer punch is? Yes. Yeah. I was yeah. hammer punching the side of her face and her head wasn't able to recoil. So I was basically just pounding her head straight into the wood. Um, I think I was trying to kill her. Um, but my dad came upstairs and like, he just, his instinct reaction 
training kicked in and he just ran over and punched me in the face, knocked me out. I woke up in juvie. Um, big ass. My, my right eye was like swollen shut from his punch me in the face. And I thought at first I'd killed her. I was just happy. I was in jail. I knew I was safe. I was around a couple of my friends were like coming over to check on me to see if I was okay. And fucking, they're like, what happened? I was like, I think I killed my stepmom. They're like, nah, you didn't kill nobody. You wouldn't be in this ward. And, uh, I sat there and nobody would talk to me. Uh, Dyfus came and talked to me and they said, we're not going to press charges. You're free to go. Your dad's coming to get you. And I'm like, okay, I still don't know what the fuck is going on. And, uh, my dad comes and gets me. He doesn't say a word. I try to say something. He's like, shut up, sit there. Don't say a word. I'm like, okay. And we get back to the house. Arlene ain't there. Adam's there. He's the younger stepbrother. Eric's there. He's the next youngest. And then little Arlene's there. And my dad fucking says, there's your bag. There's your shit. He's like, you got about 30 minutes to get yourself something to eat. He's like, and then get the fuck out of my house and don't ever come back. And I'm like, I start freaking out. I start crying. I'm like, you're going to choose this horror over me and blah, 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 blah. And we go back and forth a little bit. And then he says for a second time, he was like, get the fuck out of my house. And don't ever come back. And I was like, you're sure. And he said it for a third time. I was like, all right. I said on one condition. And he was like, what's that? I was like, you can't tell nobody. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, you can't tell one soul that I don't live under this roof. I was like, as far as the, the courts are concerned or the education system's concerned or Dyfus is concerned or mom's concerned, I still live here. And he was like, why? I was like, because I don't want to end up in foster care up in North Jersey. Because that was Dyfus's uh, answer to everything. If a kid was abused or there was problems in the home and he ended up going into foster care, whether it was temporary or permanent, they shipped them all the way to the opposite side of the state, all the way up north. Or if they were up north, they sent them all the way down south. And those kids were treated like shit by the kids. Because, dude, South Jersey in the early 80s was rough. It was rough. Like, literally, like, I'm from the area where, like, we originally were the originators of kids jacking people for their sneakers. Like, <laughs> scared programs in prisons began in Rawway State Prison in New Jersey. Like, I mean, like, I know, I like, back then, I knew, like, seven and eight-year-olds who were harder than a coffin nail. Like, I mean, it's insane. Was, was there an opportunity for you to go to your mom's? No. And the reason was, is because at this point, okay, so let me give you a little context on that. By the time I was about eight years old, I realized that there was no amount of being good that was going to stop me from getting hit. So at that point, I made a decision that if I'm going to get hit, I'm going to earn it. And I became a problem. I started fighting at school. I was, I had like the best grades you could even imagine because as much as Arlene told me I was fat, stupid, ugly, worthless, no good, all of those things stuck except for the stupid one. The stupid one did not stick. I knew I wasn't stupid. I taught myself how to read at two and a half years old with one fish, two fish. I mean, I had help from my older sister. But in the fourth grade, I did a book report, a five-page book report on George Orwell's Animal Farm. Uh, you know what I mean? Like I, mm -hmm. like I, by the in, by the fifth grade, like through punk rock music from my older brother Billy and the things that he had me reading, and because he was very political punk into the Dead Kennedys and Black Flag and the Clash and like and uh. He, other than my, like once my dad cast me aside for my step, younger stepbrother, cause he got a, a younger, newer toy, um, Billy, my older, my older brother is, and he was my real older brother. So like my dad, my grandfather, he had five daughters and three sons. One of his sons was adopted. That was Billy. Cause Cass 
was all of his kids' stepmom, except for Billy. She wasn't able to have kids, so they adopted Billy so that they could have a kid together. And then I came along as the final adopted, but they never treated me as their son. Like every year, like after I was six years old, because I don't really remember anything before that, but like birthday cards and Christmas cards would always be grandson. Even though I called them mom and dad my whole life, still do. I still call my mom, mom, still call my dad, dad. But anyway, so at, by the time I was 12 years old, I was a terror. I was in special ed for fighting, like behavioral special ed, not educational special ed. And I was hanging out with definitely the wrong people. If I wasn't in school, because here's the thing. I was like staying with friends and I knew some places that I could squat. And <sighs> so here, here's the, here's, here's the kicker. So this is where the addiction starts. Like I had already been smoking pot and drinking off and on when it, you know, we could get our hands on it at 12 years old, you know, 11 years mm -hmm. old. Yeah. But. Right before I got kicked out, I was over at my friend uh, Miles's house, and I don't know if it was if Kelly was his cousin or his uncle or what. I don't remember, but there was this dude Kelly there who was a friend of my friend of my brother Billy, and uh, he was doing some coke, and we were like, "Hey, what's up? Give us a line." And he gave us the absolute smallest amount of cocaine that you could ever possibly give to a human being just enough to make our uh gums numb and uh he was like that's a line so we like felt like we felt like, <laughs> like yeah what's up oh my god yeah we're so high right totally psychosomatic They're like you know what i mean because we didn't even snort it he literally just put it on our gums it's like we're like that's how you do it he's like well that's how you start doing it I'm like all right yeah cool cool yeah i get it He's like, you know, like you don't smoke a bong hit first, you smoke a joint. He's totally explaining it, like to make us comfortable with the fact that he did not get as high at all. <laughs> so about a week later, me and Miles, we go down to the basement at my house, and there's Billy in his room, and he's got his door open, and he has what to my eyes looks like this mountain of cocaine in front of him. But he's got a spoon with syringes, and like he he's getting it, right? And they weren't like the kind of just you got to remember context. This is 1986. So this wasn't like, these weren't like syringes that like the U100 insulin syringes that they hand out at the needle exchange now. Mm -hmm. Like back then, if you wanted, I, well, that's not, that's, that's, that's a lie. That's what they were, but you couldn't get them for free. Like you can now, like you could get a bag of heroin in 1986 for five bucks and you bought a syringe for 20. Yeah. Like they were hard to get. Like you had to know a diabetic who had a card and like, yeah, it was, it was insane. And there's Billy and he's sitting and he's got these three syringes and he's got this mountain of cocaine. So I say to him, I'm like, Hey, what's up, Bill? Give us a line. Mom's like, yeah, give us the line. And he's like, get the fuck out of here. And I'm like, well, we're like, Kelly did. And he's like, what? We're like, yeah, Kelly gave us a line. He kind so of. Like, so like, I don't know if he was trying to outdo Kelly or what, but he was like, Oh really? He's like, come on in, shut the door. Billy proceeds to fix he, Miles. Miles didn't want any, so but he was like, "If you're going to get high, he's like, get high like me." And then Billy does a shot in front of me, and I watch him, and he, the whole time he looks like he's having what to my twelve year old mind was probably an orgasm. I'm like, his whole body was just like slightly shaking, and he was like, his eyes were rolling back in his head, and he was like. And when he kind of came to it, he was just smiling. He was like, oh, my God, it's so amazing. So I was like, I want one. And Miles was like, nah. And I was like, come on, dude. So I did one. I started throwing up immediately. Uh, I was sweating. Like, I mean, it was like a rainforest coming off my body. And I couldn't talk. I just kept saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I'm not trying to be too graphic, but. The first time I ever ejaculated was for my first time doing a shot of cocaine. It was like sexual bliss. And like, I was, it was like that, that moment it was at that moment. Yeah. And, uh, my brother, Billy, when I finally was able to talk, he's like, are you okay? He's like, what's wrong? He just kept saying, Oh my God. Oh my God. And I literally, me and miles used to joke about this years later. I said, I think I just ruined the rest of my life. 
He's like, what do you mean? I was like, dude, this is the best thing ever. And then so Miles is like, wow, I want one. And uh, about three weeks later is when I beat the shit out of Arlene, got kicked out. About a month after that, I guess it was around St. Patrick's Day, um, 1986, me and Miles were in East Camden, New Jersey, which if any of the listeners know anything about New Jersey and they know anything about Camden, back in the 80s in East Camden, New Jersey, law enforcement wouldn't go there after the sun went down. Neither would ambulances or fire trucks. Like if there was a fire, that fire was burning until the sun came up because that's how dangerous and ghetto it was. Um, so here's me and Miles, these two glowing white kids, about three, two, three o'clock in the morning, walking around trying to score some cocaine because we had came up on 20 bucks. And uh, this old black guy, he sees us and he's like, man, what are you doing? And so we explained to him and he was like, come on. He takes us back to his place. And he's like, I ain't got no cocaine. He's like, but I got some heroin. I said, heroin, what's that? He's like, heroin. And I was excited. I was like, ooh. And Miles, of course, again, was, you know, he was like, I don't know. We both end up doing it and it blew cocaine out of the water. Like cocaine was a great rush, but it only lasted a few minutes. I spent the entire night and the rest of the next day sitting in this guy's house feeling so good about feeling nothing that you could have literally picked me up and put me in a 55 gallon drum full of liquid feces. And I would have been okay as long as I felt like this. Hmm. And I made a decision in that moment. Now I didn't become super strung out right then uh, because obviously, because I didn't have much money, but a year later I was strung out because by about a year later I had met enough people that I was selling crack for four corner hustlers in Camden and uh, supporting my own habit. And but in that moment, I look back and the way I describe it is because I've always referred to heroin as a female, like as my mistress. She's like the only love that I was ever true to um, until and who was only who was always true to me until she wasn't. And uh, I'll get to that here in a minute. But I feel like I made this agreement that me and heroin created this relationship where she said, I will take away the pain. I will take away the voices. I will take away the hurt. I will take away the neglect, the feelings of abandonment. I'll take it all away. And all I ask for you in return is that you give me everything. And I was like, where do I sign? I am all in. Like, I literally feel like I was selling my soul to the devil. And, and this is what started your 27 years of addiction. And uh, so fast forward, I'm 13 years old. Uh, it's the summer of 1987. Uh, me and Miles, he's not full time because he's he's got a home and his mom is awesome. She's like my, she was more of a mother to me than Arlene ever was. And uh, I'm staying in this $10 a night Roach Motel in South Philly that is populated mostly 90% by transvestite prostitutes. And uh, they were cool though. They were all junkies too. And they were the, kind of like our street parents. They took care of us. They made sure that nobody fucked with us. And there was a couple that were super creepy that used to try and get us to do stuff with other people with like their Johns and stuff. Um, cause there was, you know, there was kids our age out there doing that and we knew them, you know, I mean, you could not know, uh, but I wasn't into it. And, uh, so one night miles is like, Hey man, I'm gonna go home. It's my uncle's birthday. I'm like, yeah, cool. I'll see you. Blah, blah, blah. And, uh, this was a Friday night and one of the creepy dudes came over and was like, Hey, blah, blah, blah. I got this dude. And he just want he'll pay you to just walk around in the whitey tighties. And I'm like, no, I'm not into it. And I don't, and like they left. And then my next memory is I woke up in the hospital and my jaw was wired shut. I had 14 stitches in my butthole. Um, I had some broken ribs. Uh, my, one of my eyes was swollen shut. Um, Saturday morning, about noon, Miles had showed up um, with the spare key and let himself in and found me in a pool of my own blood, um, violently and brutally raped and beaten and left for dead. Um, 
but we had a plan, right? So we had a plan in case one of us had ever overdosed or anything like this. And one of my friends from school, her mom was uh, one of my dealers. And uh, we had a plan that if I ever got in trouble or anything, this was my name, this was her name, and she was my mom, and she would take care of everything. And so Miles called the police, and then they took me to that hospital, and then her name was Linda. Linda showed up and played the role of my mom. Once I was able to be signed out, she signed me out under our fake names. And I, you know, like this pre 9-11, you didn't have to show ID for everything back then. And even back then in South Jersey, driver's license didn't have a picture. It was just a typed out card that you got at the DMV. Um, and so I left the hospital. Um, I never spoke about it. Never once. I didn't talk to Linda about it. She never asked me about it. Miles never spoke about it. I buried that so deep in my psyche that by the time I was 15 years old, I don't even think I consciously remembered that it happened. Yeah. Um, but I will tell you, my drug addiction and my alcoholism reached new heights. And at this time, like I wasn't a very popular kid. I was dirty. I was always in trouble. Um, I was a liar. I was a manipulator. I told lies when the truth sounded better uh, because I didn't trust anybody. I hated myself. I wanted to die and I was too afraid to kill myself because I was raised Catholic and was afraid that I would spend my existence in purgatory. And so I had like all these like weird fucked up religious stuff and all this abuse and sexual abuse and psychological abuse. And I mean, just trauma on top of trauma. Yeah. And I ended up not finishing high school because I didn't have enough credits. Um, that's a long story. I'm not going to get into So I ended up <laughs> GE and, uh, I got in a motorcycle accident when I was 17 years old um, and I broke 27 bones, including my neck in three places, and my back in three places, a compound fracture on my left shin. I cracked my femur, my hip, broke all the bones in my arm, uh, broke my left collarbone. I was on the back of a Kawasaki Ninja that T-boned a drunk driver who ran a red light and I was, uh, I was found 22 minutes after first responders arrived on scene in a bush 175 feet from the point of impact by some people who walked by and saw my broken leg with my bottom half of my shin twisted the wrong way. And they went and got the police and I was flight for life. I was in a coma for 73 days and I was in traction for eight and a half weeks. Um, I had to learn how to walk again. I took the first settlement that the insurance company gave me because I was just turned 18 years old and my uncle who was already super wealthy of his own making was like, Hey kid, they're offering you a half a million dollars. And I was like, yup. He's like, you sure? And I was like, yup. And he's like, all right, I'll make it happen. He made it happen about a month later. He hands me a check for just under 400,000 because he took his fees and everything and paid all the bills and stuff. And I'm sitting there holding this cashier's check for like $352,000 or something like that, $362,000. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, what am I going to do? Right? Like, be, oh, and here's the thing. Right before my, my, my last year of high school, I had stopped doing heroin and cooking. I had just started to smoke. I had settled with just smoking pot and drinking because I was wanting to do athletics and I didn't want to be strung out. I was hoping to get into college. And uh, wow. so when I, after the accident, I decided to stay. I, I, I was on pain. I was on a ridiculous amount of painkillers, but they, I needed to be. Um, I had to learn how to walk again because of pressure on my vagus nerve. I was, or some, some nerve, not my vagus yeah. nerve. Sorry. Talking about that earlier, that just jumped out. Um, but they thought I was paralyzed because when they would do like the sensation test and stuff on my legs, I couldn't feel it. But I was in traction; like there wasn't a whole lot we could do. You know what I mean? Like the whole left side of my body was in a cast. 
But once we started rehabbing and stuff, then I got sensation back. So then, you know, like, but by this time I had a, uh, one of the walking sticks that goes around your wrist and has a handle because my, of my hip and the compound fracture on my left leg and the, uh, pressure on my back, I was still having to learn how to walk again. So I get this check. I go with my uncle. We set up an account and I put him as a co-signer on the account and I give him limited power of attorney over my money. And, uh, cause I was just concerned. I was afraid that I was going to fuck up and do something and hurt myself or kill myself or OD or something. You know what I mean? So I wanted him to have, be able to make sure that the money was taken care of. So I tell my girlfriend at the time, I'm like, Hey, what do you want to do? I was like, anything you want to do, you got a car, I got money anywhere we can drive. Let's go do something. She's like tonight or tomorrow. I said, whatever. I said, let's just go eat tonight. I said, maybe go see a movie. I said, we'll do, we'll figure it out. We'll do something fun tomorrow. She's like, I already know what I want to do. I was like, what do you want to do? She's like, I want to go see the dead at the spectrum. I was like, the who? She's like the Grateful Dead. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I was a punk rock headbanger who was into like Dead Kennedys, Slayer, Metallica, Black Flag. I was not trying to go see some burnout country hippie band from the 60s as my one big celebratory thing that I'm going to do for becoming a half a millionaire. <laughs> and uh, so I'm like, no. And she's like, are you sure? You promise? Oh my, oh my God. All right, let's go. So we go the next day. And some of the first people we run into is there's this big 1942 International Harvester school bus that looks like a big old silver bullet. And it's got a Volkswagen bus cut in half and the top half welded to the top of the bus. And it's all windows like an observatory, right? Like you can look at it while you're driving down the road and there's a rack on the back of the bus that has a love seat sitting on it that's bolted on it with seat belts. And there's all these punk rock kids hanging out by it. So I'm like, hey, let's go talk to them. She's like, all right. I'm like, hey, what's up? They're like, hey, what's up, man? And I'm like looking around. They start laughing like, is this your first show? I'm like, yeah. They're like, yeah, we could tell. So we ended up hanging out with them like – we're sitting there. It's starting to get dark because it's like uh, it's April, and uh, I think it's April. I think it's April nineteenth or something like that, nineteen ninety two. And dude hands me this glass pipe, and I'm like, "What is it?" He's like, "It's weed." I was like, "All right." And I had never smoked out of a glass pipe before. I was I'd never smoked out of pipes. Like in, like we were always so afraid when we smoked weed that we only smoked joints because you could eat them or throw them away. And the only weed I'd ever smoked was like Virginia ditch weed that we bought from this Puerto Rican guy who lived around the corner from my buddy. He was like our one steady weed connect. We never went anywhere else. He hands me this pipe, shows me the carb, and I'm like, man, this is a really beautiful pipe. And I take a hit of this weed and I start coughing and I got so high. And I hand the pipe, dude takes the pipe and I'm coughing. I'm like, what is that? He's like, weed. I'm like, what's it laced with? And he starts laughing. He's like, weed. And I'm like, what? And he shows me this bag of pine butter. And I'm like, oh my God. I was like, dude, this is like high time stuff. And he's like, yeah, bro. He's like, this is what dead tour is like. He's like, are you going to this show? I was like, yeah, we got tickets. And he was like, he's like, you got anything to eat? I was like, wow. I was like, I was thinking about getting a cheesesteak. He starts laughing. He hands me a bag of mushrooms. And I'm like, oh, all right, man. Cool. And uh, he's like, do you want some acid? And I was like, no, 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 no. Because... Well, if you read the book, you'll hear a funny story about acid in there, why I didn't want to eat it. But uh, so we eat the mushrooms and we go in. And the cool thing about it was there was really only like a couple classic rock bands that I liked, like Pink Floyd, Zeppelin. But one of them was Steve Miller Band. And Steve Miller Band was opening up for the dead. So we went in, ate the mushrooms, started tripping while Steve Miller was still playing. And by the time the dead came on, they only had one song that I knew by name and that I, if I heard it, I would know. And that was Touch of Grey. And that's because it was all over MTV. Them like skeletons playing the instruments. 
So I grew up MTV generation. So I knew that song. And that was the first song that the Grateful Dead played for me. They came out and they opened up with that song and I was tripping and I was like, oh my God, I know this song. And I fell in love. After the show, after the three-day shows, uh, Sprocket, who was the main kid that I was hanging out with, he handed me a business card that said, 1-900, run dead. Next three dates, next three shows, next three venues. And uh, he was like, here's my business card. I was like, what do you mean? He was like, if you call that, you'll know where I am. He's like, or where I'll be next. I was like, okay, cool. Three days later, I called that and I was headed for Wisconsin. I never looked back. Um, so I'm sorry, because we're going to have to wrap up soon. And I want to get to the point where you, you actually yeah. over, because I, I know all this is in the book and I, I do. And if you are interested in purchasing the book, you can click on that scrolling fortune cookie right there that sends you straight to the Amazon link. But um, before I want to let you go, because, you know, this is this. This show is a trauma survivor thrivers podcast, and I wanted, you know, you're thriving now. Yes. So and I it's can. Yeah, and and it's because you you found healing through, you know, all the trauma, and I'm I'm just curious how that happened. Okay, so uh, fast forward, I end up in Boulder, Colorado, which is where I spent the last. Or in Colorado is where I've been since 1993. Um. My drug addiction went to new heights. I ended up selling heroin and cocaine for the Tijuana cartel. It, I spent from 1996 to 2005 in prison. I got out of prison. I relapsed immediately and thought I was going to die. And I went to my parole officer and I got clean and sober for the first time. I stayed clean and sober for six years. I did a bunch. Of, I, I got sober through AA because Heroin Anonymous works through the a Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book. So I just decided to go right to the source. Um, I did the step work. I finally talked about my rape with my sponsor on my first fifth step. I talked about being HIV positive, which I had hidden for years from many people. I've been HIV positive since 2001. This was in 2006. Um, so I, so I started talking about my trauma, right. And I was sharing about it and I was four stepping and fifth stepping about it and praying about it to God. I got married to the wrong woman for the wrong reasons. Cause I fell in love with her kids and we had great sex and she ended up cheating on me. I got divorced and I relapsed in 2012, January of 2012. I relapsed off and on for the next year and a half. And then on October 27, 2013, I made the final decision that the only way I was ever going to stop doing heroin was if I was dead. So I fixed up a couple grams of heroin and intentionally overdosed. I was found after about 20 minutes. After about 10 minutes of CPR, I was revived. I was on probation for selling a stolen bike. So I was on the run. So I went and I turned myself in. And I got into a program in county jail where I signed my court dates off. I signed an agreement that said I would not be sentenced for at least 10 months until I finished the program. In this program, I started learning about, now I was in there with a group of guys that were older than me by about, on average, about 10 years, who I had been doing time with and who had taught me how to be a convict. A convict means that you don't snitch, you don't victimize women, children, or elderly. Other than that, whatever you did to get in prison, you're cool. As long as you're not a liar and a thief to the people in prison, then you're good. And these are guys that I respected as men. And I'm sitting in men's group with these guys watching Brene Brown videos talking about vulnerability and they start crying. They're talking about how their parents neglected them or abused them or their babysitters diddled them or they were molested and they're being vulnerable and they're crying. And, and I... I remember thinking like, hold on, wait a minute. Like, like we're, we're men. Like we can't be crying in front of this like cute little 29 year old therapist who's trying to like get us to cry. We can't buy into this bullshit. <laughs> and they're crying. And then I started crying and I, here's the one thing. And this is, this is what healed my trauma. Okay. And I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to break it down. Give me about three minutes. I you watched this, video of this man who said, we can never really truly heal from our trauma until we change how we tell our stories to ourselves. He said, until we can take our lives and view it from a third party objective perspective and deep dive into the backstory of our abusers, our neglectors, our abandoners, why do we think from the logical 
and pragmatic evidence that we can put together from looking at it without any personal involvement at all. Think of yourself as a psychological detective who is in someone else's mind trying to figure out the roots, causes, and conditions of their addiction and trauma. So I did this. I looked at Arlene. We've already talked about her abusive background. Hurt people hurt people. She carried on the mm, abuse yeah. over the knee. It had nothing to do with me. So I was able to find forgiveness for the act. Why didn't my dad rescue me? My dad joined the army in 1943 when he was 15 years old with his older brother's birth certificate. was fighting in Europe at 16 years old. Was there for the rest of World War II. Was at the entire Korean War conflict. He was did three and a half tours in Vietnam. He didn't know how to feel. I can't imagine the level of PTSD and CPSD, CPS, CPTSD that he had. So it wasn't that he didn't love me. He didn't know how to love me. He didn't know how to deal with his level of depression and anxiety. He would say things to me like, I should just drive us both off this bridge and do us both a favor. Like these are things that he would say to me at like six, seven years old. So like I was able to find forgiveness for him. Forgiveness is the key to healing because once you realize that, yes, these things happened to you and they were defining parts of your life, but they do not have to define your life anymore. My trauma, this is what I realized, was like I was like a kid lying in bed who had, at first when it happened, I, I, this is my analogy, is that I was like a kid lying in bed looking at the shadow in the closet. And you're going to lay there and you're going to think about it and think about it and think about it. And your mind is going to make it bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until finally you scream for help and mom or dad comes in and turns the light on and reveals it for what it is. Or you get brave enough to get up out of the bed and turn the light on yourself. I got brave enough to get out of bed and turn the light on myself. And I realized that my trauma, as bad as it was, it can never hurt me again unless I allow it to. Right. Wow. So that's my, that's my advice. This is what I do with the guys. Cause I work, I'm a, I'm a tra certified trauma debriefer. I work uh, with, uh, I try to work with veterans um, who have addiction. Um, I feel like it's being of service to my dad um, by helping them. Um, I would like to say this real quick that uh, on average, 130 Americans uh, take their own lives every day. Um, 104 of that number are men. And this is Mental Health Awareness Month. Next month is Men's Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, I feel like there's something that I can do about it personally. So on June 25th of next month, uh, or June 25th of this year, um, I will be departing on my bicycle from Seattle, Washington, and I'll be traveling through the following cities, uh, Seattle to Portland, to Eugene, to San Francisco, to Sacramento, to Reno, to Salt Lake, to Cheyenne, to Denver, to Kansas City, to St. Louis, to Indianapolis, to Columbus, to Pittsburgh, to Washington, D.C., Richmond, Virginia, Raleigh, North Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, Jacksonville, Daytona, and then finally Miami, Florida. 5,800 mm -hmm. miles to raise money for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Um, the event is called Ride for Life USA, Ride with the number four, Life USA. Um, you can check it out at rideforlifeusa.org. Um, if you want to participate or get involved, um, feel free to hit me up. Uh, you can contact me through the website. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I feel like it's a world record-breaking ride. The world record right now for a charity cycling event is the Texas 4000, which is 480 4,867 miles from from Austin to Anchorage. My ride will be 5,800 miles. Um, and the reason that I'm doing so much is because I'm trying to do the most to inspire other people to do the most. Um, you can follow me on TikTok, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook to keep up on it. Um, yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to have all that information in the show notes. Um, email everything and again if you are interested in his book i'm sorry i had to cut off such an incredible story um um so if you want to learn more about 
about his story, you can go and click on that scrolling fortune cookie right there. That'll send you to his book for purchase. Um, Rex, thank you so much for joining me. I, I feel like I could listen to your story for hours and days. And um, the work that you're doing is amazing, helping others, you know, taking your trauma to help others. And I, I'm, I'm really grateful for what you are doing in the world. Thank you for having me on. Uh, if you ever want to talk again and get a little more deep into the trauma work, less into the backstory, I'd love to chat with you again. Absolutely. Yes. We'll, we'll chat. We'll ch chat offline. So thank you again so much for joining me today. Yep. Thanks for having me. Of course. That was Reverend Rex Shades Eagle, author of No Love, a memoir. For more information on Rex and where you can get his book, you can click on that scrolling fortune cookie right there on the screen. If you're listening um, through Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts in the show notes, please check it out for his social media information and Ride for Life. Uh, information. May's issue of Authentic Insider is out. You can get that at traumasurvivorthriver.com. That's traumasurvivorthriver.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider magazine in your inbox monthly. Please thank you for joining me today. Please join me next week when I speak with Noga Schechter about complex trauma and eating disorders. You've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast on Fireside. I'm Lori Lee Benstock. Again, thank you for being a part of the conversation. Take care.